Yeah, so good morning. My name is Tommy Moore. Uh, I'm on staff here at Mercy House, and I'm going to be uh, here this morning preaching uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, uh, and we're continuing on in this series. So if you're just joining us for the first time, I want to say welcome. Really glad that you're tuning in here. Maybe you saw this on your friend's uh, newsfeed. Maybe someone shared this online, and you're just popping in. Um, you can totally catch up. You're only two episodes behind, so you can catch it online uh, at all the major podcasts uh, if you search Mercy House uh, as a church, uh, Mercy House Church, you'll see that on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Google Podcasts, wherever else you get your podcasts, and these are also stored up on our website as well. And so, uh, let me just take a minute to, to catch you up. So, <clears throat> Ecclesiastes really makes up this, what, what I would see is kind of like a three-pronged uh, three spear of wisdom literature that we see in the Bible. So, you've got the book of Proverbs, you've got the book of Job, and you've got this book here, the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, you've also got Psalms, and you've got Song of Songs, which are also considered wisdom literature, but there's really a unique continuity and a packaging uh, between Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the book of Job. And so Proverbs, as you're reading Proverbs, it's uh, in a very general sense, it's giving us very practical wisdom for the best way to live life. And so we see principles like work hard, be shrewd, raise your children to fear God, tell the truth. Ecclesiastes is going to be a little bit different as you're reading it. Ecclesiastes exists kind of as the voice that points out that even when you follow conventional wisdom, even when you strive to make the most wise decisions and do everything the way that you ought to do them, things really don't always work out the way that you would expect them to. I wouldn't go so far as to say that the author of Ecclesiastes is a pessimist, but he's experienced enough of life and, uh, to, to, to communicate that life isn't as formulaic as the book of Proverbs might make it appear to be. Uh, that sometimes th there are some exceptions to these truisms, as, as Robert has put it, uh, in, in the book of Proverbs. And also that there's just more to life than uh, the wisdom of trying to get through life as efficiently and as effectively as possible. And then where Job fits into this counsel of wisdom uh, is not with the blue sky practicality of Proverbs or the hedging of expectations of Ecclesiastes, but within both of those, what, what does this tell us about God and his relationship with us uh, through these experiences that we have in life? So when things go according to plan, when things don't go according to plan, what does is, what is our relationship with God look like? See, it's this beautiful counsel of wisdom um, that we see in Scripture, and I think it really is meant to be read and studied uh, together for its full effect. But that hopefully will help you see where we are here in Ecclesiastes. Um, and as we're reading Ecclesiastes, one of the things that we see uh, is an author who's just trying so hard to find meaning and value in life, in, in his existence as a human being. The thoughts and the questions that are raised by the author really aren't foreign to many of us who have ever found ourselves wondering, why am I even doing the things that I'm doing? What, what's the meaning to all of this? Uh, is there actually any value in the things that I'm working on in my life? See, these questions, and I think they typically spring up when we have uh, experiences of, of serious letdown or disappointments or, or experience injustice. Uh, they're usually coupled with what many would call an, an existential crisis. It's this state of deeply searching for significance and meaning for our lives, but really only coming up with unsatisfying answers. And that leaves us sad. It leaves us even depressed or in, in despair. And so the author of Ecclesiastes seems to spend uh, decades having this ex existential crisis. 
Um, as we learned last week, he, he, he does, uh, what he does is he performs these experiments as he's living to try to find the meaning and value of life. And he performs these experiments because he, he actually has the means to perform these ex- experiments. He, he has the power as a king, a ruling king, to do it. He has the resources as one of the wealthiest kings who have ever ruled. And he has the time to do it because he's the king. So he can do whatever he wants with his time. And so he throws himself into three things. Uh, to try to find meaning and value in life, into indulging himself, into seeking wisdom and knowledge, uh, and into his work, or what he calls toil. And you know what he found in these experiments? He found that all is vanity, or this, this word this, uh, that is hevel, which is translated as a vapor or a mist without substance. Uh, it's fleeting. It's meaningless. And it's not that these were bad experiments that he carried out in order to come to these conclusions. So as he indulged himself, he made for himself really amazing, great things in order to appreciate and enjoy for himself. He was an architect, an engineer, a gardener, and he didn't just build like little additions onto his house. He, he would build palaces of houses for himself. He didn't build himself a little like COVID garden with some zucchinis and kale, right? He, he planted entire forests, and then he dug out lakes in order to water those forests. So this wasn't a matter of him not trying the right things in the world. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 10, he says, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. And this is an experiment that I don't think many of us would be able to execute to the same extent. Yet, what he concludes in verse 11 is, Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, that word hevel again and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This goes the same way for his experiment to find meaning and value in seeking wisdom. Verse 15 in chapter 2, What happens to the fool happens to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity, hevel, meaningless. Lastly, his experiment of trying to find meaning and worth and his toil and his work resulting in this little uplifting nugget in chapter in, in verse 22. What has a man from all the toil and striving of his heart with which he toils beneath the sun for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. The word vanity, hevel, a vapor, meaningless. The, the conclusion for the author here is pretty simple. Life under the sun this world and what we see in it is is all there is there's no noble pursuit or endeavor which is going to make everything worth it right there's no romantic conclusion to our experiences that operates as this big payoff for everything that we're experiencing for the author life uh, and, and existence is depressingly simple you're born you toil in what feels like a hamster wheel you die and then no one remembers you that's life under the sun when, the, when God and the heavens are not part of that picture uh, and, and all that we see with our eyes and all that we can touch with our hands is all that we get, it, it, it's really not a surprise uh, that Ecclesiastes was one of the few books where uh, in the early church they debated whether or not to include in, in the rest of the Bible. And so while life under the sun is hevel, meaningless vapor, uh, there is hope. In chapter 3, it gives us a little bit of a glimpse into that as we read uh, chapter 3 this morning. So... Uh, it, it doesn't do that without bringing us once again to, to kind of the edge uh, of the cliff of despair, though. So as we read, uh, starting in verse 1, for, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. 
a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for a war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? The author here shifts from his experiments in, uh, in, in life, and what he starts to do is compile a list of some observations that he's made. Um, he does this to address what I think is another way that we as humans try to answer questions about the meaning of life, and that's through the passage of time, through the passage of time. I remember when I was in third grade at Potter Road Elementary School in Framingham, Massachusetts. I couldn't wait until I was in the fourth grade. I couldn't wait to get into the fourth grade because fourth graders got to ride their bikes to school. So they didn't have to get dropped off by their parents or walked by their parents, but they could ride their own bikes to school. And that one year felt so long. It felt like a lifetime away before I could ride my bike to school. But I eventually got there and I rode my bike to school. I remember in fifth grade not being able to, uh, to wait until I was in middle school with the big kids and no longer with those little baby kindergartners anymore. I remember being uh, a freshman in high school and, and not, being, uh, not being able to wait to get my driver's license, to, to be able to get a spot in that student lot uh, to drive myself to school. Then when I was a senior, I couldn't wait to leave for college. And in college, I couldn't wait to get married. And when I was married, I couldn't wait to have kids. And when I had kids, I couldn't wait until I could walk and talk, and so on and so forth. See, one of the ways I think that we're tempted to deal with the questions regarding the meaning of life in the moment is to look forward almost incessantly to the future. So when we're in the moment feeling this hevel, this meaningless of life, this, this emptiness or this boredom of life, we reason that there's coming a time when that will change. Uh, when we'll ride our bikes to school, or, or better yet, when we'll drive to school, when we'll find that person to fall in love with, when we finally make tenure, when we fill that savings account, when we finally retire. But how often, if we can be honest, uh, when we actually get to those moments that we looked forward to so much, do we truly feel satisfied and satiated in them? Do we ever feel the payoff that we're looking for? So much so that we never look forward to anything ever again? We can just sit in that moment and be content? No, we don't. We, we keep looking onto the future as if there's a magical season or experience or thing that will finally be worth it, even though we've never had that experience before. The author of Ecclesiastes addresses this insanity, this absurdity, by making some simple observations, observations which uh, actually have some significant implications. He starts off this list of observations by saying in verse 1, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Now this is a pretty astounding statement that really shouldn't be glossed over. So what the author is saying is that there, there's no randomness or chance to life around us. The world is not just chaotically unfolding as we live through it to no, with no rhyme or, or reason, um, even though it may sometimes feel like it is. But what he's saying is that things that we experience and the seasons of life that we go through are preordained. They're ordered. 
like the changing of the seasons. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's no escaping winter. It's coming. Last night was 35 degrees, people. But here's the point that the author is, is trying to make. If, if every season uh, and, and experience of life is, is preordained, believing that the future will bring something new and wonderful is, is vanity. It's hevel. One, because Ecclesiastes 1.9, he, he says this earlier, what, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. And again, we see this in, in, in the next um, part of the passage this morning in verse 15, that which is already has been, that which is to be already has been. So we see that there, there's nothing new. Like what we're experiencing has, has already happened. It's these cycles of life that continue on and on and on. We, we also, um, as, as we put our hope in the future and, and looking uh, to the future, what that does is it, it also kind of rips us away from the present moment. It, make, it makes us even loathe the present sometimes. It's why some of us just love shiny and new things while others of us like exciting wild adventures or just want to experience something new. Uh, but how quickly does that newness fade? Like think about that new car feel. If you've ever had a new or relatively new to you car or maybe that unboxing of that brand new cell phone or maybe stepping foot into that brand new place that you've never been before or trying that brand new food that you've never had before. And then that car that you drive gets a dent or it blows a tire. And that cell phone starts losing its battery capacity. You have to charge it multiple times a day. You start seeing ads for brand new phones. Right? The food that you, you tried for the first time is pretty good, but now you're getting a little bit sick of it. And it, it's just getting a little bit old. So part of what the author is saying in there being a time for this and a time for that uh, is that it's hevel. It, it's meaningless. Uh, to anxiously wait for that when we're in the this. Because when we get to that, we're going to want this again. It's this meaningless, meaningless cycle of, of wanting what you don't have and thinking that the thing that's right across from the street from you is, is going to provide meaning to life, even though when you get there, you're going to want something else. It, it's a cycle of, of absurdity. And part of um, what we're doing as we hope in the future um, is that we try and use this like, time to answer the question for meaning in a world of hevel uh, and, and emptiness. And what we'll also try to do, instead of just looking to the future, is we often try to escape the current moment that we're in. This is actually how Ecclesiastes 1 uh, through 9 is often presented or taught, at least in, in my experience. I've heard it preached at a funeral, and it's not to point out the meaning and the purpose of death, uh, of the death of the person, uh, but it, it's meant to make the point that this moment of sorrow and pain is, is momentary. Um, it, it's almost thinking that if we can just get over this, if we can kind of get through this time of death uh, and pain and sorrow, uh, then, then it will pass and we'll be able to move on with our lives onto the next season. It, it, it's been an absolutely crazy year so far. Um, in 2020 between the pandemic and all of the fallout of that and then the civil unrest in our country surrounding racial inequality and and inequity um, i can't tell you how many times i've heard or even thought to myself i, I can't wait until this is all over and part of that is, is putting a hope in a future that isn't as crazy but it's also uh, uh kind of seated in this sentiment of we just need to get through this we need to get out of this moment. We, we need to do what we need to do. We need to kind of self-care ourselves, 
pick up certain hobbies, stay alive, and then this, this will pass and we'll, we'll be able to get on to normal life. See, the vanity in this is, is, is not just thinking that the future holds some sort of answer that we don't currently have and that that will provide meaning and value for life, but that the, the present moment is just something to get through. And, and I think what we're, we're tempted to think this way when we experience some hardship or suffering or sorrow or pain, we, we do whatever we can to distance ourselves from all of that, to pass time as quickly as possible, to occupy ourselves and distract ourselves from the moment, or, or just to remove ourselves from time as best as we can. I, I remember in college, I, I struggled a lot with depression. And I remember in the darkest seasons of that, uh, just, just sleeping a lot, reasoning that like if, if, I, if I'm asleep, like time is passing and I don't have to deal with the moment, the, the season of pain uh, and, and, and the hevel that I was experiencing there. It, the moment was too heavy, trying to escape that moment. So whether we're looking onto the future for meaning um, in the moment or we just hate the meaning of the moment so much that we're trying to run away from it, the author is pointing out that time itself is hevel, it's vanity, meaningless. It, it, it's this thing that just marches on at its own speed. And our desire for that speed to either speed up or to slow down or, or for it to not exist at all has no effect on time. If we live under the sun uh, without any acknowledgement of God or anything bigger uh, that, than what we can see and what we can feel, verses 1 through 9 here are, are ultra depressing. There's no comfort in what the author is saying. He's saying that these preordained seasons that that oscillate back and forth are are really like a prison that we as humans are trapped inside of without any hope of escape, that that we're subject to this march of time and the cyclical experience that begins at birth and ends only at our death. He he ends this section with a question in verse 9 says, what gain has the worker from his toil? The answer to that question is nothing. A commentator points out that the items on this list, in this poem, while there's no indication from the text itself of what's good and what's bad, they're just observations, uh, what they do uh, show us is that they, they represent opposite statements. And so there's a time to be born and a time to die, born, uh, a time to break, uh, break down and build up, a time to mourn, Time to dance, weep, and laugh, seek and lose, tear, and so it's these opposite statements. And since they're opposites, they kind of nullify each other. They cancel each other out. And so that means that there's really no net gain or net loss. The, the author's question then of what do you gain from going through all of this literally is nothing is gained. In all this toil, all the sweet moments, all the heartbreaks, all of it amounts to nothing in the end. It's, it's meaningless. So once again, um, and I think we need to get used to this as we're reading Ecclesiastes, is the author kind of walks us to the edge of the cliff uh, as he's exploring and searching for the meaning of life, and he re- seemingly gives us every, every reason to jump off that cliff. Um, and up until now, what he's been saying is that life is hevel, uh, pleasures don't satisfy you. Wisdom is meaningless. Work is empty and full of frustration. And now time itself is a prison that you can't escape. Everything under the sun is hevel. And thankfully, he doesn't stop here. In verse 10, he writes, I have I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. 
Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. The author turns our attention away from this reflection on time and, and onto God. See, remember, this is done often throughout the whole book of Ecclesiastes. There, there are these experiments and these observations that kind of take place under the sun uh, as if nothing else exists. And then the author kind of pokes his head above the clouds a little bit. And, and he provides this wider perspective of, of, of what's happening under the sun in relation to God and eternity. And in verse 11, the author says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. The language here resonates back to creation in Genesis, when God created the heavens and the earth. The word beautiful here is understood as, as right or appropriate. So God has aligned everything appropriately for its time. Again, this is communicating that we're not living in complete chaos and randomness, that, that things are preordained, but even more importantly, they're preordained in a beautiful, right, appropriate way. That just as God has made every aspect of creation, and when he did, he looked out over it with every atom and molecule in the right place, with every plant and animal in its right place, and as he's reflecting on this, says it, it is very good. So just as he does, does that over all of creation, um, so he does that over every season of existence, every time, whether it's this or that, it is good. The author then shifts a bit uh, and he says, also he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I, I would, in my experience as I'm reading this, I, I see this sentence as both incredibly comforting, but then also incredibly uh, discomforting at the same time. Time. Let me explain what I mean. See, it's comforting because what it's doing is it's actually validating our longing and our desire for something more than what we're experiencing under the sun. Uh, the phrase, uh, he, that, that's God, has put eternity into man's heart is implying that um, there's a way that, that we're wired that, that's critically unique, uh, that we are hardwired in our hearts, uh, our heart of hearts, the core of our being, to, to crave and thirst for meaning and purpose that transcends what we can just see with our eyes uh, and what we can touch with our hands. It, it validates our existential crisis in a way. It's saying that we're not made to be able to just run on a hamster wheel and be eternally satisfied with that experience. That we shouldn't be eternally content with our careers and the work of our hands or eternally joyful because of the great knowledge and wisdom that we can amass or eternally satiated by these fleeting pleasures like watching a good movie or eating a good burger. The author totally recognizes and sees this in himself, and, and, and he diagnoses why this is a serious problem. He says he, he has put eternity in his, in, into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. See, the author affirms this longing for eternity in our hearts, but also points out that we don't have the capacity or the ability in our current state under the sun to have that satisfied. I want you to imagine your favorite movie right now, or maybe your, your favorite song. That's the movie or song that you would watch for the rest of your life or, or listen to for the rest of your life. Um, something that you deeply treasure from like the beginning all the way to the end. Now, imagine never having seen it or heard it before and someone presents to you just one scene from that movie or maybe one verse from that song. And then they rip out 
the TV plug, or they rip out the ear, uh, the AirPods from your ears. Um, and so you're never able to see or hear that in its entirety for as long as you live for the rest of your life. I think that would at the very least leave you feeling disappointed and kind of sad, knowing that there is more, knowing that there's, there's a start and a finish to this, this beautiful thing, but not having the ability to, to hear it or see it in its completed glory. I, I think that's what the author is getting at here, that, that we see these slivers of beauty and goodness in our lives, and, and we have this longing to see it in its complete glory, knowing that there must be something more than just this little sliver or these slivers that we experience in life but not having the capacity to do so. So that's the tension of living under the sun. So how are we meant to live in this tension? Is this just a curse that we're under, to, to long for the eternal, but to be confined in a finite world in finite bodies? Let's look at the wisdom that the author has for us in this last section, verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. It's not really that often that you get an application like this, but here it is. Uh, the application for this morning is to eat, drink, and take pleasure in your work. Because these are gifts from God. Uh, as we consider the meaning of life, trying to find substance and, and purpose for it all, we often look to the future of, of one day, uh, the, the fact that one day that might come to us. We also try to run away from the meaningless of life in the present. But what the author is getting at is that God has designed and ordained the present to be lived in in, in the present. That these seasons of life that we go through, while some are sweet and others are bitter, are existing in our life with purpose and for a reason. Now, do we know why or can we reason the purpose of each of these seasons in our life? how the current pandemic is quote-unquote beautiful in its time, what could possibly be right or appropriate about losing a loved one? No, we, we can't always understand or know. That's what verse 11 is getting at. He cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And there are things, many, 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 many things that are outside of the scope of our minds to be able to perceive and understand the greater significance of. But this doesn't stand in contradiction to the fact that God has made everything beautiful in its time, even when we can't perceive or grasp what that beauty is. But this doesn't mean that beautiful moments don't completely escape our comprehension. Yesterday I was, I was finishing up uh, my sermon and, uh, and the girls had gone out apple picking and I heard them come home, I heard the door close, so I ran outside and I saw uh, my, my oldest girl, Chloe, out there. And so I picked her up and was just holding her. It was a beautiful afternoon and, and I'm just standing there. She's giving me this big old hug. I'm hugging her and, and she just completely unprompted said, Daddy, I love you. And see, that was like this moment that I, I couldn't bottle that up to enjoy later. I couldn't slow down time any more than how it was passing. 
I wasn't thinking about, okay, when's she gonna say this next? Okay, that time is gonna be even better. I, I did what, what, I, what I'm seeing the, uh, the author of Ecclesiastes uh, telling me to do, which is just to savor that moment, to, to take joy in that moment, to appreciate that moment, that, that, that it won't last forever, but crying about over that, that fact that it won't last forever actually can rob you of the joy of that moment as, uh, as a gift that's being given to you. Mercy House, there, there hasn't been a time like this, at least in, in my lifetime, uh, with, uh, with this pandemic where I've wanted time to pass quicker um, or, or hope for a future when we can embrace one another or all be together or just go to the movies. Um, but this season is here with purpose, with a purpose, uh, in its right place. And the best thing that we can, can do is to be present in the moment, to appreciate and enjoy the moments of beauty and even the hard moments, knowing that these moments are fleeting, um, but they're also our, our portion, what God has given to us, and we are alive to experience them. So that's my challenge to you this morning, is the next time you have an opportunity to enjoy something, whether it's a meal with someone you love or a sunset or a walk, um, and you feel tempted to either take out your phone to take a picture of it to have that moment last longer than it is, or, or, or maybe you're struggling through a particularly difficult moment, a difficult season, and you're just searching for ways to pass the time faster, um, stop for a moment and be in that moment for what it is, whether it's good or bad, sweet or bitter, understanding that it's a moment of life given to us by a good God with purpose and intentionality. And so the author points to the reason why we're able to enjoy these fleeting moments. Because if these moments were all that we had under the sun, if there's no greater purpose or, or, or eternal reality that our hearts uh, are, are longing for, uh, what a depressing application to just eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. But thank God there is something much greater and much more grand that we get to be a part of. So as we come into uh, the landing here, I want to show you a couple ways that I think this passage points to Jesus. And the first is right here in verse 11, as it mentions that God has put eternity into man's heart. At first glance, I, I thought that this just meant uh, that we had this desire to live forever and to never die. Um, the, a hard wiring to, to just crave immortality. But as I continue to meditate uh, and on this passage and think about what the author was saying and where he was coming from, I, I wondered, would the author really want to live forever? Like, if this is, if this is the world that he's describing and, and he's at the top of the world, able to have whatever he wants and do whatever he wants, um, as he's articulating his experiences in this world, does he really want that existence to continue on to eternity forever? If we polled centenarians, these are people who live over 100 years, and asked them, do you want to live forever? With everything that you've experienced, all, all, all the toil, all the sweet moments, and all the heartbreaks, all of that amounting to a net plus of zero, like, would they say yes? Would they say yes, sign me up for another millennia in this world? Would I, and this is where I was starting to think about it, would I want to live forever here on this earth? I, I don't think so. Um, if eternal life means living in this world under these conditions forever, I'm not sure how great of a gift that would be. But thankfully, that's not what eternal life is. Now look at John 17 with me. In a very transparent and blunt way, Jesus himself defines what eternal life is. And it's not merely just living forever and never dying. In verse 3, he says, this is eternal life 
that they, that's us, know you, that's God, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Having eternity written into our hearts is less about our desire to just live forever. It's a desire to know and be known by God. And the know here is not just having a surface level conception of God, but having a deep, intimate relationship with God. Eternal life is is not about how long you'll be alive, but who you'll be spending eternity together with. The person of whom our souls were made for, the missing piece in our hearts, the ultimate meaning and value and purpose for everything, who's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The the author of Ecclesiastes is searching for meaning under the sun, and and it's not there because nothing under the sun will fill the God-shaped vacuum in our hearts. Not work, not pleasures, uh, not, not a piece of knowledge or understanding, nothing except for God himself, who we were made from the very beginning to be in relationship with. It's only when we have this relationship with God that we're actually able to truly appreciate and enjoy life under the sun. The author of Ecclesiastes would be driven to complete despair if it were not for his ability to to peek his head above the heavens and understand uh, that, that there is more to life than just what is under the sun. And so as we put our hope and our trust in God, and a God that loves us, and, and, and as, as he has demonstrated that love for us on the cross to, to purchase this eternal life for us, we get to appreciate and enjoy the greatest gift of all, which is Jesus Christ. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and, and after giving thanks, he had broken it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. When we think about communion, the the call uh, to to eat and drink and take pleasure that we see in Ecclesiastes is a call to the communion table. Communion is a reminder each week of the greatest gift given to man. Grace, forgiveness, mercy in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Christ. Communion is not meant to be this experience of self-loathing and shame. The meal itself is uh, representative of a wedding feast, a a celebration. We're literally at a celebration at a wedding. If you've never been to a wedding, your your job is to be joyful, to eat and drink and take pleasure. If you want to be a good wedding guest, that's what you need to do. Communion then reminds us that that God um, is with us in every single moment. So not just the moments that we get to celebrate, like a wedding, but also in our mourning and in our loss as well. So Mercy House and those who are listening on the live stream, we we do long for the day that we can be in person again without any restrictions. Um, And a lot of that is because we want to be able to celebrate in person with you each week through communion. So I want to encourage you. If you haven't, just take a look on our website. Look at some of the ways that we've prepared our space uh, to accommodate the restrictions and the safety measures that are put in place by our local government. Uh, And and just prayerfully consider coming to one of our in-person services. We obviously want you to uh, do what's best for you, to to use your best judgment and discernment um, to, to, to decide whether or not to come. But if you are on that fence, Come celebrate with us. We'd love to have you. We have two full services right now of people. Um, we have lots of safety measures in place. Um, and so we want to encourage you 
to come. And, 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 and if you're at home and you just don't want to come because you don't want to wear a mask, I want to challenge you, like, put on a mask for 60 minutes as you worship God, as you fellowship with your brothers and sisters, as, as you celebrate the greatest gift uh, that we've ever received. So if, if you're hearing this and you're wondering, what does it look like to have a relationship with God? What, what does it mean to have eternal life? Um, you can check out our website. If you go to mercyhouse365.org slash respond, um, it, it walks you through what it means to have a relationship with God. And it gives you a way to throw your name in there if you want one of us to reach out to you uh, and, and spend some time answering questions or just talking. We, we'd love to do that. So just check out that page um, on our website. We're really glad that you joined us this morning. Uh, I'm going to take some time to pray now, and, and we'll, we'll close out this live stream. Father, we thank you um, for the meaning and the value and purpose that, that are in you. Um, God, we thank you for your promise uh, that, that you're always with us, um, and that means through the, the awesome moments of celebration, but also uh, the more difficult moments of sorrow, pain, and loss. We thank you uh, for the gift that you have given us in Jesus. And we thank you that through that gift, we're able to truly appreciate and enjoy all other gifts in life, God. Um, so we pray this morning, uh, God, I pray for those who don't know you, that, that they would take uh, that step of, of, of asking uh, directly to you, who are you, God? Um, that they would take steps of asking their friends and their family, those who do know you, um, to, to be able to share this great hope that others have, God. We pray that you would be working in our church um, as a whole through this season, Lord, that we would be able to see you as beautiful and glorious and uh, trust in your, your sovereignty and your providence over it all, even when we can't understand uh, or even are frustrated by um, how we can't see how this plays into the larger picture. But we trust that you do see things from the beginning to the end in a way that we can't. We trust your goodness as it's demonstrated on the cross for us, God. And, and we thank you. We thank you for these moments. Uh, God, we love you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.